Father, we come before you this morning, and um, Father, on this final day of this great conference, we're so grateful, Lord, for uh, the many, many uh, servants of yours, God, who have come here, Lord, from all over the world to to share their experiences and their insights, God, with us. And Father, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of good noise. Uh, at this conference, God, we're asking today, Father, that your voice would sound like a trumpet in our ears today, God. We're asking, Lord, that today you would pinpoint and clarify the action that you want us to take, God, the direction you want us to set ourselves, Lord. We ask, God, for you to refine our hearts today, God. We ask, Lord, for you to sift us, God, sift us, Lord. We don't want to be sifted by the enemy, but, Lord, we would love to be sifted by you, God. And to have separated out, God, the things that have become obstacles in our lives and our thinking to serving you, God. And, Father, we want you to purify us and to purify this company of people that are in this building today, God. That, Father, we might be as refined fire, God, uh, as refined by fire, Lord, ready to go out as pure gold, Lord, to honor you in our generation. Father, I pray, God, that today would be a, a hallmark day in the lives of of hundreds of people in this building today, God, that, Father, today would be the day, Lord, that they took the next step, that, God, that they took, uh, that they found, Lord, a fresh measure of the Holy Spirit, and a fresh measure of faith, God, to walk in the things that, you, that you've given us and the opportunities that you've laid in front of us, that we would be good stewards of the nations, Lord, that you have given to us, And so, Father, we just pray in Jesus' name, Lord, for you to be honored today. And in this talk, God, that you would be honored, Lord. Father, we give ourselves to you as living sacrifices this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, My name is Steve Noblet, and, um, and I run an organization called Christian Community Health Fellowship. And um, CCHF is a 40-year-old organization um, that was started uh, when, um, in the 1970s, uh, uh, there just seemed to be a group of Christians disconnected from each other all over the United States that began asking the question, is there a difference between being a Christian doctor and practicing Christian medicine. And I don't know if you know the, if you hear the difference in that question, but the, the, the question began, if Jesus were doing this, would he do it the way we were trained to do it? Would he do it the way that we, that the, that the healthcare system in, a, in our country is, uh, is sort of structured, or would Jesus be doing something different than the way that we, that we are doing it? And, uh, there was four groups of people that, again, completely disconnected. One from Rochester, New York. One from Washington, D.C. A group in Appalachia and in western, uh, in eastern Kentucky, and a group in the Mississippi Delta that decided, "Hey, let's do something. Let's let, let's try, let's experiment with this. Let's let's just say, let's all the rules are off the table, and we're going to start with a blank slate and the Bible." And we're going to see if we can deliver health care in a way that looks and smells more like Jesus than what we see happening 
around. And the, and the, the short answer to their question was, it was, yes, there is a difference. There has to be a difference because what's happening here is not working very well. There's, there's brokenness and fracturedness and obstacles and access issues and all kinds of things. And so they began to uh, sort of play around with, with models that, uh, that, would, that would resemble more what they think of when they think of Christ and his kingdom in healthcare, care. And, uh, and, boy, it was totally imperfect. I mean, it was a real mess. And right now, today, 40 years later, it's a, it's a real mess. Like, we still haven't gotten it, and we're still asking that question. But, we, but we're, we're asking and we're learning from each other, and we're genuinely seeking God. And we've come to a real place of humility in our little movement around the country that we need Jesus to open our eyes. We need the Holy Spirit to open, to give us revelation about these things. There are things that... Uh, you know, if you think about what Christian health care, as opposed to being a Christian doctor in health care, the, there are things about Christian health care that, um, that, that are sort of automatic givens, like Jesus treated people body, soul, and spirit, didn't he? I mean, it was preach and heal. It was address their spiritual need, address their physical need. It was feed people. It was all of those kinds of things. And so treating people as whole people and not as a as a palate for diseases and things like that. That was a big issue, all right? Another one was Jesus didn't ever treat a poor person differently than he treated a wealthy person or a person of privilege. That there was always, uh, there, there was always this real sense of justice and equality in Jesus' heart. He saw, he didn't see people as they were only. He did see people as they were, but he didn't see people as they were only, but he saw people as they were created to be, the image bearers of, of God, the people that were actually created in his image. And so um, so those were the, some of the things that sort of have driven what's been happening in the United States for the last 40 years. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning because I know that that's why you came. But what I really want to spend my time talking about is uh, very personal my, I've been here doing this for nine years, for nine years, and I've visited literally hundreds of Christian clinics across the country over, the, over those nine years, and there's things that I believe should characterize Christian health care in the United States of America. And so I want to talk about that for a few minutes, and this will have spillover effect into those of you that are doing overseas work, but um, I'm hoping that it will sort of enlighten you guys a little bit, make you think about this. So when we think about God's global mission, we have to remember that, that North America is on the globe, right? Like domestic missions is not something God ever thinks about. God does not think about calling you into domestic missions because God doesn't any more live in America than he lives in North Korea, right? He lives, the whole earth is his. He has one, it's all domestic to God. Right? The whole global thing is one big thing to God. And the only people that talk about domestic and, and international missions as though they're separate things, honestly, are people from America and people from parts of Europe. And everybody else, I mean, like in, when you go to Zambia, they don't talk about domestic missions in Zambia. It's all mission. It's just one big thing. So what, is the, what does it look like in the United States? So here's our mission field in the United States. This is a map of medically underserved areas, and a medically underserved area is a 
um, is a geographic, a spe- very specific geographic area with real clear boundaries as defined by the Department of Health and Human Services that, uh, that is characterized by four things. There are too many old people, not that we want to get rid of them, but there are too many old people, too many poor people. The infant mortality rate is super high, and there's not nearly enough physicians or primary care uh, uh, providers to take care of them. And if there's color on this map, it doesn't mean that, it's a, that, there's, that we need another doctor or two there. If there's color on this map anywhere, it means that there is a severe shortage of health care. So um, what does that look like in reality? So there are, even this, these are new stats. This is after the Affordable Care Act has been in place for however many years it's been in place now. 16,500 medically underserved areas in the United States. And uh, George Washington University School of Public Health recently did a census of those areas, and over 96 million Americans live in a medically underserved area, which is an area where, uh, as Rick and I like to say a lot, where, where patients have to compete with one another for doctors. We see a ton of doctors and private practices that are competing with each other for patients, and that's because they're all clumped. That's because the, the medical resources in the United States are maldistributed. And, uh, and so they're clumped and siloed in areas where doctors like to live, as opposed to where the people who have the greatest needs are. And uh, I had a doctor say to me one day, he says, well, that's not a medical issue. That's a transportation issue, and any ordinary person can solve that. And I just thought, what an idiot. <laughs> How thick are you? The people that live in these communities have the worst transportation. They have the hardest time getting someplace. So let's move some of these doctors into these communities where the need is greatest, and let's let them drive in and do that kind of thing. But it's not happening. That's not happened. Here's what chaps me. I've been preaching this for nine years, and do you know how many medically underserved areas there were nine years ago? It was right around 16,800 350 medically underserved areas have gone away, have stopped being medically underserved areas in nine years with the Affordable Care Act and the billions of dollars that have been pumped into this. And the problem is not medical resources and the problem is not money. The problem is we can't get people to think missionally about medicine. We just want to, we, we want to continue our lives the way that the whole rest of the world and the rest of the medical community has taught us to think and not think missionally about medicine. If you're a missionary in West Africa, you better go to West Africa. So we need redistribution. And, and I'm going to tell you, it's not going to happen easy and it's the people like us that have the Holy Spirit who loves the people in these communities that are, um, that are, going to, that are going to address this. I had several other slides to follow this, and, um, and I, I erased them this morning because they're depressing. But the truth is that these medically underserved areas and these 96 million people that live in them are, are predominantly people of color and people who live at or below the poverty level. 
In addition to a medical need in the United States, the United States is going through a great evangelical recession. Uh, this is a real uh, statistic here, but there are four times more, four times as many churches closing every year as there are new churches being planted in the United States. And um, this is a this is a, uh, st- uh, a quote and a study from the, the Francis Schaeffer School of Leadership that the United States now ranks third, following China and India, in the number of people who declare themselves to be non-Christians. In other words, we're becoming an ever-increasing unreached people group. We're losing our country. So when you think about missions, I don't want you to think about missions as something that you might do one day after you graduate college or after you get your student loans paid off or after you get your retirement fund uh, you know, fully funded. But I want you to think about mission as a way that you live. And I want you to think missionally about medicine in the United States. Now, I mentioned that there's, uh, that 40 years ago, a group of Christians began thinking about doing this in a different way, about addressing this issue, about seeing the United States as our, as our first mission field, not our only mission field. I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit, who inspired uh, Luke to write Acts 1.8, which says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, that he didn't make a mistake and, and, and write the word and instead of the word or, or instead of the word then, but that the Holy Spirit that has, that has put, the Holy Spirit has the whole, all, the, all the world in his heart, and when he comes into us, he gives us that passion for all the world. I don't think that we should be dedicated to domestic missions at the expense of foreign missions. And I don't think we should be dedicated to foreign missions and overlook domestic missions. It's an and issue. It's a both and issue. So here's sort of a map. This is from the CCHF website. And you can go on our website and it'll have maybe about 40 or 50% of the clinics that we know about and that we're involved with. Uh, across the United States that are, uh, that are uh, these are clinics that are uh, located in medically underserved areas, serving the poor, trying to do it in a gospel-driven, gospel-faithful way, um, and are open mostly full-time. In other words, they're having some level of impact on their community. So there's about 360 of them across the United States. There's really probably closer to 1,000 but a lot of those, the vast majority of those are open maybe one day a week or one day a month. And to be honest with you, if they went away, there would be a few people that would be hurt for a little bit, and then they would find another place to go, but they, wouldn't, they don't really leave a hole. And we need to be people who are leaving a footprint. We need to be people who have an investment, who are scalable to the size of the need in our communities, and who are committed to, um, to not doing something just as large as our uh, willingness to sort of volunteer a few hours a month. But we need to do something that resembles the greatness and the advance uh, of the kingdom of God in our communities. So there's a lot of those clinics around. We know kind of what we're doing. There's a number of different models um, that people are using. So uh, you guys are familiar with some of these, but different models include free and charitable clinics. And by that, what I mean is that they're funded by uh, charity. They, you go out and raise money, 
and then uh, however much money you raise, then you can go and see that many patients. Healthcare is expensive. Cost a hundred dollars between a hundred and a hundred and thirty dollars to see a patient, if you're well managed and do it right. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're paid by federal funds or whether you're paid by charitable donations. That's what it costs. So it costs that at least money or money and in-kind donations. And so, so there's a lot of free and charitable clinics. There's some very, very good ones out there that have that have scaled to a a, a really significant size and, and are, are a significant part of the uh, of impacting the health in their communities. There's hybrid clinics. Hybrid clinics look a little more like private practices a lot of times, except that they're, they tend to be nonprofits and they still have to be supplemented by charitable donations, but they bill insurance. So that means that they see people who are both insured and uninsured. They have to raise money to help pay for the uninsured, but then, um, but they do get some money for, from insurance. And then there's a new sort of thing is subscription clinics. Uh, and subscription clinics as, um, I don't know, some people call them concierge clinics. We don't really like that term very much. Subscription makes a, a little more sense. But basically it's uh, the ones that I know about in the United States that are, you know, striving to do this in a Christian way, um, they tend to be pretty small, usually usually one or two or three doctors in a practice or providers in a practice. And basically what they do is they say, um, if you give us $1,000 a year, you can come to the doctor as much as you want. We're never, we're never going to bill your insurance. Uh, we don't take federal money. Uh, we don't need donations. For $1,000 a year, you can come as often as you like, and we'll give you 30-minute FaceTime appointments, and you can make your own, you know, you can schedule same-day appointments as much as you want. And the way that all that works for them is uh, if a doctor, let's say a doctor can see 800 patients in their panel, then uh, they'll take 400 of those that pay a subscription and then usually 400 of those that, can't, that couldn't afford that. And they'll give them the exact same service. And so it's not that they're giving one level of service for the haves and a, and a lesser level for the have-nots because that doesn't smell like Jesus, does it? So they're, they're serving everyone the same, and, the, and about half of their patients pay full price, and the other half of their patients pay little or nothing or whatever they can. A lot of, a lot of doctors like that, to be honest with you, because uh, they're sick and tired of dealing with insurance companies, and they don't want to go through all the hassle of federal dollars and those kinds of things. And, and here's what I have to say about that. That's not a really good reason to do it. That's a pretty self-centered reason to do it. So there's a really good reason to do it is we live in a community where we need to serve both types of people, and this is a good way for us to serve both types of people. That's a good reason to do that. Um, and then there's community health clinics or community health centers, and you'll, you'll hear words like FQHCs and lookalikes. FQHC stands for Federally Qualified Health Center. And basically, that again is a government designation. Um, it's, um, it, it's, it's basically a community that's located in a medically underserved area and that is focused on truly serving that population as its primary patient target. And they have to meet 19 core requirements. We won't go into all of those. Uh, that would be the most boring thing you could hear at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. But you have to meet all these 19 requirements, and if you meet those requirements and compete with other groups and 
and um, and you're popular and you're doing this well and your population is a is a heavily needed uh, population, then you can get you might be able to get your clinic qualified as a federally qualified health center. And there's advantages to that in that. Uh, when you when you get Medicaid, you get enhanced Medicaid reimbursements that actually make it feasible and viable for you to continue to be sustainable as a uh, as a clinic, and they pay you enough that you can see uninsured patients as well. In fact, that that's one of the requirements of an FQHC or a community health center is that you have to see both Medicaid patients and uninsured patients. And so uh, the ones that are, you know, of these, like all of these are really good models, and there's a place for each and every one of them. There's a reason to do each and every one of them. We have a little motto around our office is that the model is not the mission. The model needs to serve the mission. And so don't let your political leanings push you into one or the other. I mean, get rid of all that stuff. And what we need to do is take a look at what has God called us to do and what's going to be the very best way for us to do this. So there are some very, very large community health centers that are Christian community health centers. And amazingly, in the United States of America today, and for the past uh, 45 years, they're fine for you to pray with patients, for you to share the gospel, for you to hand out Bibles, for you to talk to your patients about Jesus, for you to lead them to Christ. My wife worked at a uh, Christian community health center in Memphis as an HIV case manager for a number of years. She had about 120 patients in her uh, patient panel, and these are all HIV-positive people that are living in poor communities. And she prayed for probably 30 to 40 of those to receive Christ in her office and saw real-life transformation in those people. And so, um, and nobody came in and slapped her hand. The deal is you can't bill the federal government for that, and you can't make evangelism and conversion a condition of the patient coming to you and and if you're a good christian you wouldn't do that anyway right so it's it's not a bad thing and and i know a lot of people are scared of the federal money but the truth is right now caesar is friendly to us uh when it comes to health care maybe not so much in education and other areas but health care we're good so here's the real question is what should health care in America, what should Christian health care in America look like? What does missional medicine look like? And hopefully it should look like something more than something that's just a little bit better than what we have now. Uh, and I, you know, when you think about what Christ came to do, Christ came to establish a kingdom. His gospel was the gospel of the kingdom. And he came to establish a kingdom, a society that looks like a city. And it's a city that's built upside down. It's a city that doesn't resemble the cities that we as people build. It's a city whose foundations are in heaven and reaches down to the earth. And it's the, it's a contrast, if you will, to the Tower of Babel. If you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, you know, the, People got together and they built a city, and, and as they were building the city, they said, let us make bricks of, uh, of clay and fire, and let us build a tower that has its foundations in the earth, but that reaches to the heaven. And that story comes right before we're introduced to Abraham. And, we're, and what we're told about Abraham in the New Testament is that Abraham was a man who himself was looking for a city, but it wasn't that kind of city. So God was not pleased with the kind of city men were going to build without him. 
He was looking for a man who would look for a city that was built like God wants to see a city built, whose foundations are up and who's been who's being built down. And so Jesus came to establish that. And so when we think about the the uh, as we think about the cities or if or or the cultures or the societies that we as fallen people have built, we need to understand that they are broken and dysfunctional. And that's not a great revelation to you guys today. But uh, we, we, we've built it all wrong because we've built it on something else other than God. Now, Colossians 1, I, I was meditating on that this morning. I was just stirred by it afresh that Christ was the firstborn over all creation and that all things were created by him and for him. And then it sort of lists them out. He said, all things in heaven and all things on earth, all things visible and all things invisible, all powers and authorities and rulers and principalities were created by him and for him. He's before all of that, and in him they all consist. And so we as Christians, okay, here, let me tell you, here's the biggest difference between being a medical person who's a Christian and being committed to this, Christ, this concept of Christian mission, uh, medical mission is that we don't see ourselves first and foremost as a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist who happens to be a Christian. We see ourselves first and foremost as a Christian who, who has been commissioned as an ambassador of this amazing kingdom. That God has put us on earth to, to represent his government to represent his building program, to understand the nature of what he wants out of each and every one of these things. We need to see health care not as this gigantic institution and bureaucracy in which we're a little tiny cog that gets sort of lost in all of it, but we need to understand that we stand with dignity and anointing and authority and revelation as a government official of a foreign government come to press the interests and the culture of our government into this foreign area. That's who you are. You're an ambassador of Christ that's been sent to the institution of medicine. And as such, we need to understand that this institution of medicine is a power. It's a fallen power. But it's not an evil power. We think of powers and principalities, immediately demons come to mind, right? But that's not what Colossians 1 says. Colossians 1 says that Jesus created all of those for him, They were created to bring him glory. And what we need to understand as ambassadors, first and foremost, is that health care is not something that sort of just sprang out of man's fallenness. Health care a, is a power and an institution that is vital for people to thrive. And God wants people to thrive. It's a creation of our society. When Jesus saved me, he changed my heart. And he began to change my life and my behavior and the way that I think. And my mind began to be renewed. I began to behave differently. And Jesus was not just interested in me and my soul. He was interested also in me and my relationship with my wife. 
He's interested in the way that I love her. He's interested in the way that I serve her. He's interested in the way that we relate together. He's interested in the way that we raise our children. He's interested in the way that our household is run because that's an expression. It's a, that, and that sphere begins to, cha- begins to enlarge. He's interested in the way that I relate to my neighbor, that I love my neighbor as myself. He's interested in my, in my ever-expanding definition of what a neighbor is. He's interested in all of those things. He's interested in whether or not you're fair and righteous and just in your work. If you cheat your employees, if you mistreat them, God's interested in that. And God is interested in us redeeming these structures that come out of our relation together. He saved us not as a whole bunch of floating corks out there, completely disconnected with one another, a whole big giant mass of individuals. He's creating a family. He's creating a community. He's creating a kingdom. He's creating a Christian society. That scares people. And we've gotten that wrong a whole lot more than we've gotten it right, really. You know, I mean, because we've isolated the world from that. This This is a Christian society that's supposed to have no walls. It's a Christian society that's supposed to be salt and leaven and light in dark places. It's a Christian society that's supposed to be not building walls to keep the devil out, but breaking walls to get into the kingdoms of darkness and the dominions of darkness. That passage I just quoted from Colossians chapter 1 comes right after. He says, do you understand who we are? Do you understand who you are? He rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. And this is how we need to begin to think and and begin to think about our careers in very, very practical ways. Don't spiritualize or throw that stuff off into some sort of ethereal philosophy of life and don't throw that off into the future i mean we've got to make that practical we need to represent a kingdom that's tangible when jesus talked about the kingdom he talked about the kingdom being at hand now let me tell you what's not at hand hayden right here on the front row is really close to me but he's not at hand this is at hand this is at hand i can reach out i can touch it i it's tangible I can put my hands on it. And so we have to be those people who are committed to seeing this kingdom made tangible in medicine. All right, so I've got uh, a few minutes. I want to go through uh, four things, four qualities that I believe are, that, that, that Christian health care should embrace. If, if it's a Christian ministry that you're involved in or if, or if you're involved in any type of health care as an ambassador of Christ, here are four things that I think are really important. This is really, really radical. There should be distinctively Christian patient care. So if I ask, what is distinctively Christian patient care? You know, almost always somebody's going to say, well, it should be excellent. Well, I think all health care should be excellent. Not, that's not distinctively Christian, but definitely it should be. It should be that. When I think about distinctively Christian healthcare, the passage of scripture that that I'm most sort of moved by is uh, is the the story of the sheep and the goats, which was the last parable that Jesus told publicly before in his in his public ministry. He closed his public ministry out. It's kind of interesting if you think about it. He opened his public ministry. With a, with a, a message that says the spirit of the Lord has anointed me is is upon me and He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and 
and uh, release to the prisoners and all of those things that he talked about in the very beginning. And then he bookended his public ministry with this parable of the sheep and the goats. And we don't have to go through the whole thing, but basically as he separates the sheep and the goats, he turns to the sheep and he says, hey, you guys get to go to the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. And they said, wow, how did we get to be so lucky? And he says, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. When I was sick, you looked after me. And they said, we don't remember that. When did we do that? And he said, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And then he turns to the goats. He says, you guys are, you all got a different destiny. They're like, how come we don't get the kingdom? It's like, because you didn't do any of these things. Because when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And um, now in that parable, so I, I, get, I get asked to speak a lot at these sort of fundraising banquets for a lot of these charitable clinics. And every time I do, just before they get up to take the offering or take the pledges for their, for their ministry, they always say, we need to fund this ministry because we are the hands and feet of Jesus to these people. And we are. I mean, I get that we're the body of Christ and we are the hands and feet of Jesus in that sense. But in this particular parable, who are the hands and feet of Jesus? It's the sick. It's our patients. It's the, it's the prisoner that's the hands and feet of Jesus in this parable. So distinctively Christian health care means that we don't think of ourselves as the caregivers coming to bless the poor, needy person here. But we recognize Jesus is walking through our door. And we are going to treat these people like him. We're going to treat them like Jesus treated people. Not by looking at their current condition only, but by looking at their, at their destiny. By looking at what they were created to be. By recognizing that Jesus is revealing himself to us, the king of the universe. Revealing himself to us through brokenness and through pain and suffering of people around us and we're going to put our hands on those people we're going to i I love that i love in this parable that it said it does not say i was sick and you healed me because boy that would be pressure wouldn't it but he said i was sick and you looked after me you were just present with me and so when i think about distinctively christian health care in terms of uh, uh patient care it's got to be personal and attentive, and we've got to be present with people, not pushing through a schedule. We've got to treat them with dignity and recognize them as the image bearers of God. And we've got to treat people as whole people, both medically and physically and also spiritual as well. So this is a real challenge because we have such a bizarre paradigm of what spiritual care looks like because we've separated it out from physiology for so long that we don't understand how they relate and correlate, right? And so this is the problem that I see a lot of nurses and a lot of doctors who want to do this with patients. They want to address the spiritual needs of their patients, but they've never been trained how to do that as doctors and nurses. And what you don't want to do is suddenly, like, I have an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation with this person. I've got to take off my white robe and I've got to put on my white collar And I've got to suddenly be a pastor, because you're not a pastor. And that patient doesn't need you to be a pastor. 
He just needs you to be their doctor, their nurse, their pharmacist. And so there's, there's really appropriate and, and very effective ways of doing that. And there's, there's, uh, there's quite a few. There's uh, the METS program. There's Grace Prescriptions. These are programs that are out there that are really inexpensive and in a long weekend. You can, you can really get some tools to begin to do this. You train for years to fill prescriptions or to, you know, pr- practice nursing or to be a physician. You know, train for at least a good weekend to address spiritual, uh, you know, health with the, with the patients that you're dealing with. So invest in something like that. I, one of the most effective ways that I've seen was for a doctor as he's, as he's, as he walks into the exam room and as he's talking to the patient and he's doing his, uh, quick spiritual, uh, quick physical history or medical history on the patient, uh, for them to just simply say, I want to ask you about your spiritual health on a scale of one to ten. How would you rank your own spiritual health? It doesn't really matter what they say because the next question is tell me why you gave yourself that score. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, now I've got a 30-minute counseling conference with this, with this patient, but it does mean that you have an understanding of how they think about things spiritually, and they've opened that door for you. And as a, as a provider or as a, or as a nurse, you then have an opportunity to go through and address things in an appropriate way. And we have almost never, almost never had a patient say, you know, I, I think that's an inappropriate question, including Muslim patients. It almost never happens. All right, so distinctively Christian patient care is the first area. The second area that I think characterizes what Christian health care should look like is distinctively Christian organizational culture. It's not just how you treat your patient, but it's how you relate as a team of people together. And, uh, you know... Jesus, in his final great prayer in, in John chapter 17, you know, he prayed to the Father and he said, May they be perfected in unity so that the world may know. Like, this is a very, very powerful testimony. And the truth is that if, you're, if your team, if your organization is fractured, if they're, if they're bickering, if they're, not, if they're unhappy with each other, if they don't respect one another, if there's arguments and factions and competition within your team, it almost doesn't matter what you do with your patient in the exam room because you've compromised the testimony so bad that you're having to overcome those things. But we've seen amazing places where organizations said, hey, listen, this has got to become a really high value for us. We've got to make reconciliation of value in our HR policies. You know, what does that mean? It means that when things get uncomfortable between me and another employee, I don't, I don't like, move them on to another department or fire them. Uh, you know, that, that we make every effort that we can to, to walk out reconciliation as ministers of reconciliations and, and, and as peacemakers. And we call people to this high thing, to this, uh, to this opportunity to share life together in a way that honors Christ. Well, how do we do that? My goodness. We, we work with non-Christians. We, we, we hire non-Christians. We can't discriminate in our hiring. We have to hire people. Listen, you shouldn't hire anybody that you can't walk in unity with. You should never hire anybody. You shouldn't, you shouldn't add people to your team. If, you have, if you're in that position of control and, and, uh, and authority, you shouldn't add people to your team that are a poor mission fit for your organization, including Christians. There's a whole lot of Christians I wouldn't want to work with. 
So, so this is a really important thing. So um, there's a passage in Exodus chapter 33. It's, a, it's the story that happens right after the, the, um, the Ten Commandments and, and Moses comes down and he sees them all worshiping the golden calf and he breaks the commandments and, and uh, all of this kind of thing. And it says that uh, in chapter 33 he goes to intercede for the people because God's about to wipe everybody out in Israel. He's about to just snuff them out. Uh, and he even tells Moses, he says, I don't need the rest of them. I just need one man that will do what I say. I just need one. I can do it through you. And so Moses intercedes for the people and he says, you know, God, you know, please don't do this. This is your reputation's at stake. It's all about you, your reputation. And so God relents and, and so God makes a deal with Moses. And basically this is the noblet paraphrase version, but basically he says, okay, here's the deal. I did promise Abraham and your forefathers that I was going to give them that land. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an angel. The angel's going to go in front of you guys. He's going to go ahead of you. He's going to drive out all of the people that are in that land. And then you guys can just walk in and take over their farms and plant their crops. And I will have fulfilled my promise to Abraham. But I'm not going with you because if I go with you, I might kill you. Because you're a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And Moses... Again, paraphrase says, that's a very generous offer, but we don't know the angel. We know you, and if you aren't going to go with us, we don't want to go either. And then he says this. He says, what else will distinguish us, your people, from all the other peoples on the earth except for your presence? Now, I think that's what distinctively Christian organizational culture really is about. It's about a group of people together honoring the presence of God together. You say, well, how in the world can we do that? I work in a secular hospital. You know, I've got all these people. They're talking about what they did on the weekends. And it's, you know, they're not Christians and it's just me. Then you honor the presence of God because he's with you. He's promised to be with you and to never leave you or forsake you to the end of the age. He's with you. How many of us have ever, maybe even at this conference, been in a place where you just suddenly were so struck by the fact that God's presence was there? Have you ever had that experience? Raise your hand if you've ever had that experience. Yeah, like most of us have, right? All of us can. So when you had that experience, what did you feel? What were the things that, that made you believe God was there? Tell me. Peace. Just an amazing sense of peace. What? There was this passion. This, your heart was stirred, right? Okay, what else? Protection. Protection. You knew God, that God was there. Protection brings security, doesn't it? If you know that you're protected, there's that sense of security. And that security brings both peace and boldness, really. What was the other? Love. love. Absolutely. You're just overwhelmed with this sense of love. The sense of acceptance, the sense of value. That's what love is, isn't it? It's someone values me. Right? Anything else? Joy. Joy, yeah. Just happiness. Just joy. Lightheartedness. Lightheartedness, but not frivolous in a, in a way. You know, but yeah, joy. So let me just tell you, those are the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. 
don't let those things be just this inward thing. Like, we need to be extrovert about the Holy Spirit. Um, there's things I want to say about that. The Holy Spirit, a picture of the Holy Spirit is oil. Oil was always meant to be worn on the outside of your body. It made your face shine. Oil was the anointing that was on the outside and on top. Let me just tell you, we need to be people who look and smell like that. We need to be people who walk in peace, who have joy. And how do you do that? Well, it's not that you work it up. It's that you recognize and honor the presence of God. All right. So... Healthy, loving relationships. All right, this is just a, like, I'm trying to do better at CCHF with this. And, and this is just one example. I'm not suggesting anybody else do this. This may be the craziest idea ever. But I started thinking about if organizational culture is that important and if it's that powerful of a testimony and we're a Christian organization, then I want, I want my, all of my employees to understand the importance of this. And so, um, we used to do job reviews every year, and in our job reviews, we would take a look at their job description, and we'd break it out, and we would say, how did you do on this part of your job description? How did you do on this part of your job? And all of these performance reviews, right? And so we've thrown all that away. And what we've decided is we want to we review people on the important stuff. And so we've broken it out into four areas that we feel like are critical in our testimony as an organization that resembles Jesus. And job performance is a big part of it, okay? But it's not the biggest, it's, and it is the biggest single part, but it's not the biggest overall part. So job performance is still important. It's not any less important than it was, but it's 30% of, what we, of how we sort of rank where our employees are. Personal development is 20%. And so we're asking questions like, um, what are your personal goals this year, or what are some things that you feel this coming year that you that you would like to see yourself develop personally and professionally that are going to help you better honor Christ and better do the job that that that, uh, that He's given you and fulfill your responsibilities? And it doesn't always have to do with their job, with their immediate job. Jessica is here. Jessica really wants to be a psychologist one day, and she's studying at the University of Memphis to get her finish her bachelor's degree. She's here from Uruguay. She's uh, moved here a couple of years ago, and, and so she's sort of on this track, and she works for us. And we're making room in her schedule so that she can finish that degree, and we're interested in that. We're asking her how she's doing in her studies. We're trying to encourage her. We're praying for her in those things. She may never use those for CCHF's benefit. She may use them in some other way, but we want to see people plugged in doing the things that God's called them to do, right? Okay, contribution to the culture of the organization. How has your presence in our organization made our organization better as an organization? How, and, and by better, not just more effective, but how have you helped keep Christ at the center of the things that we're about. And so we, we talk about really specific things. And then participation in the creative process. Like the kingdom of God is constantly advancing. It's, it's growing. It's never going to stop growing. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. God is the most creative and innovative 
thing that's out there, and we want to tap into that in what we're doing as well. And so not just how did you, how creative were you on your job, but how creative did you, did you participate? Did you ask a really good question? Did you challenge us on a program that you're really not in charge of, but it's something that you want to see this be better at in terms of what we're doing? So anyway, those are just some things like that. We, we, we've also stopped talking about being a Christian organization or, and stopped talking so much about being faith-based, and we've changed our language to being Christ-centered or Christ-focused because Christian tends to be a political thing anymore. Faith-based tends to be nothing anymore. But Christ-centered means that the person is in the middle. All right, so uh, we talked about distinctively Christian patient care, distinctively Christian culture, and then the third thing is embracing our prophetic role. And I've already talked about this quite a bit this morning, and you guys just didn't realize it because you didn't know what, it, what I would mean by this. But being a, a prophetic role, there's a, um, I, one, of the, one of the ways that I think describes a prophetic role is in the Old Testament, there's a number of places um, in Kings and, uh, uh, and in uh, Amos and in uh, Isaiah where God talks about holding a plumb line. And there's one place where he talks about the plumb line in the hands of the prophets. And, um, and I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever seen a plumb line before, but basically a plumb line is just a, a string with a weight on the bottom. It looks like that right there. And you take it up to when you're building something, you take it up to this wall and you hold it up here, and you can tell whether this wall is built straight up and down, right? And so when you hold it up there, you say, that wall is plumb. That wall is exactly like it's supposed to be. Y'all did a very good job on this wall. This is exactly what it was supposed to be. This is built according to the pattern. So we should do more of this. This is really good. But then we also hold it up to something that's not plumb, and we say, this wall is out of plumb. This wall has to change. This wall is unacceptable. And so we can't do this anymore. We have to make the correction that's needed. And one of the one of the great roles of, of of prophets is that they are agents of change. When they speak, people act. When teachers speak, people understand. When pastors speak, people feel great. When prophets speak, it's that it's that they're stirred. They're ready to you know, and they they create change. What we don't understand is that that's what we were created to be. God's community was described first and foremost as a prophetic community. On the day of Pentecost, when God initiated the church, you know, they had this sort of weird, like, tornado that blew through this house, and people's hair were on fire, and they were stumbling through the temple courts, screaming in tongues, and, and, and all, of us, all these nations of people stood around and said, what the heck is that? And Peter stood up, not speaking in tongues and probably with his hair not on fire, and stood up and said, I got the answer to that. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about when he said, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will. What's the next word? Do you know that word? All right, y'all all have to go back and memorize Peter's seminal gospel presentation on the first day of the of, of of Pentecost, right? He says he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and they will prophesy. 
both men and women. And the young will see visions. The old will have dreams. They will all prophesy. And here's the very first description of the church, of God's people, was to be a prophetic people, a people who have a prophetic role, a people with a plumb line in their hand, a people who are ambassadors of a kingdom and says, hey, this is not just. This does not serve the people that need to be served. This healthcare system that we're part of is spending money in the wrong places. It's not directing resources where the areas of greatest need are. This healthcare system that we're a part of, or this insurance pal- uh, group that we're that we're taking money from, that they're not allowing us to do the things that make patient care the best thing. They're not honoring God in this way. We're not walking in righteousness. We're not walking in justice. And so I don't think we have to be those people who are constantly making everyone feel uncomfortable. I don't think that we always have to stand at some distance with our bony fingers and point out all of the problems with the healthcare system. That's not being prophetic. Any idiot can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But what we have to do is stand and represent something that calls people to the right and higher standard. We have to represent that in our own behavior in our own organizations, in our own actions, but we also have to call and not be afraid to do that. And so I think oftentimes the best way to do that is to say, hey, that's broken. That's not right. That's broken. By the way, I'm broken too. I know where we can go get healed. Let's go together. It's, we stand not as outsiders pointing our fingers at everything that's wrong with their stuff, But we stand as owners and participants. God's called us into this awesome, wonderful institution of health care. But he's called us as ambassadors, not just dead salmon that float downstream. All right. Um, Our identity as ambassadors, understanding why health care exists. I already talked about that. Commitment to justice and equity. Talked about that. Advocacy. That's a big part of this, a a, a big part of the the prophetic uh, role is to be advocates. And advocates, first and foremost, to the house of God. We need to call the church uh, to engage in this way. All right. Um, All right. So, four things that I said. Distinctively Christian patient care. Distinctively Christian organizational culture. Embracing our prophetic role. Expect resistance. Expect to suffer. It will happen. It's actually promised. It's one of the great promises of God, isn't it? You must pass through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom. Hallelujah. It says he encouraged the church with those words. Yeah, so what does that really mean? He encouraged the church with those words. I've always wondered, why was that encouraging? It's because of this. We tend to think of resistance when people don't like us or when people resist us. We tend to think of that as, like we must be doing something wrong. And what he's saying is, no, actually, that's probably a sign that you're doing something right. Not that we're supposed to be offensive to everybody, but we are going to either be the fragrance of life or the fragrance of death. But we are going to smell. We are smelly people. Okay? All right. The the final thing is Christian organizations should so be on the interests of your own organization. And by that, uh, you know, again, uh, our... Commitment is to the uttermost parts of the earth. So I think about domestic medical missions. For years and years, 
When I first started, most of, the, most of those 360 clinics were these tiny little groups that were just trying to make payroll next week. And their whole focus was just, I mean, they were, they were really hashing it out and, and just fighting everything, just fighting for survival and existence, you know. But as they began to get stable, as they began to get on their feet, uh, I began to challenge them and say, you know, hey, listen, uh, that whole Acts 1-8 thing applies to domestic people, too, like. If we're, if we're focused so much on domestic that we're forgetting the nations, that's not right either. And so we need to really be thinking about adopting an unreached people group. We need to be thinking about doing something beyond our own immediate interest. And, and boy, I got a lot of pushback at first. I mean, in fact, I still do with some groups, but, but, you know, they're like, hey, listen, God put us here. We're supposed to be here. You know, if we can't meet the needs of our own community, what are we doing trying to meet the needs of others? Uh, in other nations, and it's like, well, that's a very American way to think, but it's not a very kingdom way to think. That's a very domestic way to think, but it's not a very global way to think. And so we need to understand that God is, that the Holy Spirit that has called you to serve where you are, to be present and to be effective and fruitful where you are, He's also just as passionate about you being involved and engaged in some level in carrying the gospel and care and meeting the needs and bringing justice and a demonstration of the kingdom of God to places where it's just not there. Um, I've got some great stories of organizations that took that gigantic step of faith and said, we can't afford to do this, but we're going to start sowing into the Horn of Africa or into the Middle East or uh, Central Asia. And, and the transformation that's taken place in every single one of those organizations has been amazing. So it could look like a lot of things. It could be just training and envisioning the next generation. I know I talk to doctors all the time. They're like, I don't want to train students because they're stupid and they slow me down. You know, it's like, right, you were stupid once. <laughs> you slowed somebody down. You're here. Like, you just don't understand. I have to see 22 patients a day, and my patients are tough patients to see. We got huge needs. We're cancer, you know, we're turning away 50 people a day. This is not unusual for Christian clinics. We're turning away 50 people a day that we can't see, and I'm just too busy to train students. And it's like, and so you think that the answer to your tsunami of need that you're seeing at your door is for you to see two more patients a day? Maybe the answer is for you to make a disciple. For you to have somebody to come alongside and duplicate yourself, replicate yourself. Isn't that what we're called to do anyway? And so training and envisioning the next generation of medical disciples. And by the way, that doesn't mean treat them the way that you were treated in your training. Okay? What it does mean is that you want to give them great education. And you want to call them to a higher standard. And you want to hold their feet to the fire. And you want to make them fulfill their, their potential as medical professionals. And at the same time... You want to pour your life into them and talk to them about calling, about mission, about vision, about the kingdom of God, about being an ambassador of his kingdom. You want to give them that tool that they can begin to understand and and incorporate the entire medical training experience through that paradigm. All right, pioneer, mentor, and support new healthcare ministries. I love this. We've got some organizations that have said, well, we... Boy, we got a lot of bruises, and we, it was really hard to get our thing up and going. 
Uh, I'm glad we don't ever have to do that again. And then some of the others have said, well, yeah, we, we had the same problems that everybody else did. But you know what? I think, we'd, I think we could help the next group. Not, I think we could help them avoid some of the things that, mistakes that we made. And so, yeah, but how does that pay your bills? It doesn't, but it extends the work of God. Um, send short-term and long-term missionaries to restricted access countries. Here's a challenge. Send your very best. Yeah, don't send the guy who's seeing, you know, like you're, you need a patient volume where, you're, you're pay, where your providers are seeing 18 to 20 patients a day and you got a guy that can't get past 12 a day. Let's send him overseas. Like that's not, I'm not saying that. Send your best. Encourage them to think about that. Release them. You know, I, um, Rick Donald's sitting here in the back and I, use, I like to tell the story of uh, Christ Community Health Services that um, that there came a point where his best provider wanted to go to a, a nation, a, a restricted access country in Central Asia, his best provider, and they were having a hard time recruiting providers. Like it's a it's it's a hard sell, you know, to say, hey, come and serve the hardest, most difficult, sickest group of people who are not always very grateful, and 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 get to do that in the worst neighborhood in Memphis, in the worst city in Tennessee in the Mid-South, and, and, and get a chance to, do, to, to work and live every day of your life in neighborhoods that your parents taught you to avoid, you know, and do it for a fraction of what you'd make in private practice if you were over in the, you know, five miles away in the suburbs. It's a great calling, right, Rick? <laughs> you know, and he's got this awesome provider, and, and his provider says, you know, I really feel like I want to go do a DOTS program in in Central Asia, and they released him to do it. They sent him. They sent him. They sent him with support. They sent teams out to support him and to visit him and encourage him and his family. And that guy was there for years. And I'm going to tell you something. They've never had a problem, never had a problem recruiting providers. And that's what we're seeing is that organizations that embrace this, they don't have financial problems and they don't have problems with recruitment and retention. Because if you're faithful with a little, God will give you great. All right, I don't, our time's up. I've said as much as I need to say today. Um, I hope some of this has inspired you. I hope you think about yourself differently. And I hope you're committed to see Christ exalted in healthcare here in the U.S. and beyond. So let me pray for us. Father, I'm asking you to seal your word by your Holy Spirit. I'm asking God for you to stir us. Lord, not to just get us excited, but God, I'm asking, Lord, for you to tattoo something deep in our souls uh, that you want us to, to be about for the rest of our lives. God, give us perseverance, and Father, give us courage to follow and walk in you, Lord. And Father, help us to walk and understand your grace and honor your presence. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.